Welcome to episode two of Brilliant Minds of the Animal Kingdom. This episode is all about animal intelligence. In other words, how smart are animals and what, if anything, separates us from them? Are we smarter or just different? Are they capable of imagining scenarios? Do they feel the same emotions we do? Do animals understand what is fair and what is unfair? To answer these questions, I'll be interviewing France de Waal, a world-renowned primatologist and ethologist. He is the professor of primate behavior in the Department of Psychology at Emory University and the author of several best-selling books, including Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? and Mama's Last Hug. He'll be explaining how his decades of research have shifted paradigms across the scientific community and how he himself has been amazed by the brilliance and complexity of the animals he studied. Hi, France. I wanted to thank you for coming on today. I have a lot of questions for you, so I thought we could just jump right in. Yep, sure. So you're most known for your work as a primatologist. What drew you to primates in the first place? Yeah, I'm, I'm an animal lover. And so from very young, I had animals, mostly aquatic animals like fish and salamanders and stuff like that. And then later birds and mice. I had a whole little zoo. And at some point I started my studies in biology. But uh, the primates came much later in my career. And so that's, um, that's a sort of secondary love. And um, as, a, as an undergrad student, I already worked a little bit with chimpanzees. And so I had my first experiences very early. Um, and later I um, worked with macaques and then with chimps and then with capuchin monkeys. I, I like all the primates also. <laughs> so uh, uh, it's not specific that I wanted to be with chimps, no. You made some observations early on in your career that would end up being the building blocks of much of your work in philosophy. The observations you made were controversial because they were at odds with a lot of the teachings at the time. What is it that you saw and how was this a different perspective? Yeah, so in the early years when I was a graduate student, everything turned around aggressive behavior. Uh, Conrad Lawrence, uh, um, an Austrian ethologist, had written a book on aggression, which everyone had read and everyone was talking about. And some people were extremely opposed to the book and his ideas about the aggressive instinct. But aggression was the topic. And so my task was to study aggression in chimpanzees. Uh, but very soon I discovered that um, there is actually not so much aggression going on in a group of chimps. And also that they uh, kiss and embrace after a fight. And I found it more interesting than the aggression itself. Uh, and no one was talking about the fact that animals deal with aggression and handle aggression and reduce aggression all the time. And so um, I got more interested in the other side of the aggressive equation, like not where, where does it come from and how strong is it, but more like how do they handle it in their social system. And um, from there, I moved to all sorts of topics related to that, such as empathy and cooperation and so on. So I got much more interested in the, in the, in the let's say, the social cohesive side rather than the, the competitive side of animals. So... This was a big departure from the traditional lens of seeing everything through survival of the fittest and competition. Was there a moment where this all came together? Yeah, there was a, there was a particular moment, which was a very strange moment, because um, uh, I, I had seen a big fight in the chimp colony that I worked with at the Arnhem Zoo. And um, 
after the big fight, like a couple of hours later, there was a whole pandemonium of chimps uh, hooting and yelling and standing around each other. And, and two of them embraced uh, in the middle of it. And I had no clue what was going on. But I kept thinking about it. I kept thinking, what was this all about? And then I realized that the two who embraced were the same two who had the fight earlier on. Um, and so that's where it clicked, where I thought, well, th those two things are probably related. And maybe everyone was so excited because they were reconciling. And so once I had seen that one incident, uh, I saw many of them. You, you could see it every day. It was really not a was not a big deal. They did that all the time. You, usually they do it much faster. It's not like a couple of hours later. It's just uh, like 10 minutes later. So usually it's much faster. But um, in this case, uh, it really struck me as an important event. In your book, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? You highlight how a lot of the characteristics that are often touted as being uniquely human are in fact found throughout the animal kingdom. In fact, there's still a lot of resistance to this notion, both in the sciences and at large. So I wanted to go down a list of traits traditionally considered uniquely human and see if your studies or the research of your colleagues has found close parallels in the animal kingdom. Let's start with language. Well, language is the one trait that I, I consider uniquely human. So, so people are always upset when I say we, we have also this emotion or we have that kind of, we, we can plan for the future. We, we, we have even consciousness in, in animals and so on. People are always getting upset by that and they say, what is the one thing that's remaining because we need to have something uh, and, and that one thing, I think, is language. I don't think language in all its aspects is uniquely human because you can find elements of language. Certainly communication, of course, exists in animals, but also um, uh, communicating about distant events and things like that. You can find aspects of language in other species, but the whole thing is symbolically learned communication system is all the flexibility of language doesn't really exist in other species. So language is the one thing that I think is different. We have made an enormous amount of attempts to teach language to apes, to parrots, to dolphins, and so on. And uh, these efforts have come up short to some degree in the sense that uh, we, we, get, we get apes maybe to the level of a two-year-old, but not much further than that. And so um, uh, language is really a human characteristic, I think. Yeah, I read somewhere that prairie dogs, for example, have a highly evolved communication system. It's so specific that some have argued that it should be considered a language, the language of prairie dogs. Uh, they can describe the type of predators they see and even describe the color of a shirt a human is wearing or if they're carrying a weapon. Doesn't this count? Yeah, that's one, that's one of those elements. So, so some elements of language, like a referential signaling, it's called, to, to signal uh, referentially meaning that you can indicate, is it a flying predator or a walking predator or a snake? So, so some animals have alarm calls that are quite specific to the predators that they face. And so they, they refer to these predators, so to speak. Uh, and so that's, that's one of those elements of language that we can find in other species. But the whole thing, you're not going to have a discussion with a prairie dog about any topic. So the whole thing of language is not found in other species. Fair enough. What about tool making? 
Yeah, that's the other one. So, so we humans, we are very focused on those two aspects of intelligence, language and tools. And in the tool part, the animals do very well, actually. So, so we have uh, studies of tool making in birds now, uh, certainly in the, in, the, in the apes. And actually, the first indications of animal cognition came out of the tool studies of uh, Wolfgang Köhler. Köhler was a, a German psychologist who, instead of training his animals, he worked with chimpanzees, instead of training them, he just gave them a problem to solve. He would hang a banana very high and give them sticks and boxes and then see if they could reach the banana. And the, the chimps would sit around, he would describe that, and they would sit around for half an hour. And all of a sudden, one of them would take the boxes and stack them and take a stick and reach the banana. And, and he would say, the chimps solve this problem in their head. They have not done trial and error learning. They have no experience with this particular situation. And all of a sudden, they have a solution. He called it an insight, uh, or in German, an Einsicht. And so he, he was the first one to say that animals can actually think. And he has been hated for that ever since. This was in, in the early, was in 1905 or 1920. Um, was very early in the previous century. And people hated him for it. And so the behaviorists who said everything was based on learning, they couldn't stand um, Köhler. But Köhler was the first one to say that animals could solve problems. And this was based on his tool studies. And then later, of course, we got also studies of tool making, how animals and, and, and observations in the wild, by the way, by Jane Goodall and people like that, of, of chimpanzees modifying twigs to make better tools out of them. And tool making was considered a uniquely human feature. There was an anthropologist, uh, Oakley, who had written a book, Man the Toolmaker. And, and he said, well, maybe, maybe animals can use tools, but they never make tools. That's a uniquely human feature. And so now we have all these studies, even birds making tools under certain circumstances. I wanted to pause the interview for a second to talk about the birds, known as New Caledonian crows, that are famous for making tools. They fashion twigs into spears and hooks that they use to eat grubs. These crows are intelligent in so many ways and are capable of, for example, dropping rocks into water-filled containers to displace liquid and snag a floating bit of food. Recent studies have shown that these birds can imagine different scenarios and plan steps ahead like a chess player. There are lots of other examples of tool use humans have witnessed, like octopuses using coconut shells to shield themselves, or dolphins that carry marine sponges in their beaks to stare at ocean bottom sand. Dolphins also like to get high off of pufferfish, but we'll discuss animals and psychedelics in another episode. Recently, wild pigs were observed using bits of bark to dig in the soil, so it's not just primates. Tool use is important because it's a clear example that brings us closer to animals and it helps us realize we're all connected. Now, back to France de Waal. So France, language and tool making are perhaps some of the more studied sectors of animal cognition, but what about how animals feel towards each other? What about something like empathy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, empathy is of course more of an emotional, has an emotional quality to it. And empathy for a strange reason the psychologists had decided that empathy was a cognitive feat. And so they, um, they would say, we decide to be empathic. And when the first studies came out of humans being automatically empathic, 
they couldn't stand it. So the, there were studies by a Swedish scientist who, who demonstrated that, that if people look at the computer screen and they see frowning faces or smiling faces, they frown or smile automatically. And they do it even when they are not aware of these faces because they are shown subliminally, like for 50 milliseconds. So you're not aware that you see them, but you're still frowning when you see a frowning face. And so in humans, we know it's an automated response to do facial mimicry, which generate emotions. And, and so that's how you emotionally relate to others. If, you, if you're talking with a sad person, you will have a sad expression on your face and you will start feeling sad at some point. So, so that's emotional contagion and it's an automated process. And so when I first in the 1990s said that animals have empathy too, that animals relate to the emotions of others, um, there was a lot of resistance to it because empathy was considered a cognitive feat that was uniquely human. And now we recognize that empathy has several layers. There's an emotional layer, which is clearly what we share with, let's say, a dog or a rat or uh, all sorts of mammals. And there's a cognitive component, like uh, you imagine the situation of somebody else or you take the perspective of somebody else. And that's much more complex. I was not talking about that kind of complexity, even though I think uh, chimpanzees and elephants and dolphins, they have these capacities, these, these perspective-taking capacities. But I wasn't even talking about it. I was just talking about being affected by the emotions of somebody else. And we now recognize, there's all sorts of studies now, uh, even in rodents, we recognize that many mammals have that capacity. There was a study you mentioned in your book about mice and empathy. Could you tell us a bit about that research? Yeah, the, I never could do the neuroscience on empathy because I work with chimpanzees and bonobos and elephants, and there's no way um, for me to do neuroscience on that. Uh, and we always wondered, is the process behind the empathy of, let's say, a chimpanzee similar to, to what we humans have as a process? And in the rodents, we could do some neuroscience. And so we worked with voles, which are small rodents, a bit like mice, and um, did the neuroscience on uh, empathic reactions because, because we could demonstrate that they, for example, they respond to the distress of somebody else. And so they have these empathic reactions. And the neuroscience is very similar in, in the rodents and in humans. And so now we have finally some evidence that also the underlying neural circuitry, so to speak, and the role of oxytocin and so on is very similar in, in rodents and us. And I would basically say that all the empathy reactions we see in mammals all are very similar. Uh, and, and so it's, it's not just the chimpanzees and, or the dolphins. It's, it's all the mammals have these reactions. And we think all the mammals need them because um, they respond to the distress of their offspring. When they're, when, when, whether you're a mouse or an elephant, if your babies are hungry or cold or calling because they are distressed, you need to respond to them. And so that's also why females have more empathy than males, um, because it starts probably with maternal care. The fact that mice have the ability to be affected by another mouse's pain or suffering is really interesting. It makes you think twice about putting mice traps in your house. At least for me, it certainly has. The idea that females are more empathetic is perhaps another characteristic human and animal communities share. I'd seen a chart that you made showing how females are generally more empathetic in chimp communities. Yeah, that's the interesting part, is that in the chimpanzees, the females are more empathic than the males. But when you get to the alpha male, all of a sudden, that's an empathic character. And, and I think the alpha, 
there's a strategic element probably to it because the alpha male needs to be the head of the group and, and keep the peace also. And so a good alpha male responds to others in distress and, and helps them and protects them. So a good alpha male keeps the group together, keeps harmony in the group and protects the underdog and has all these responses. And if an alpha male is good, he, he usually stays in power for a long time because the, the group wants him to stay in power. So, so there's a certain democratic element to it is that if you're not a good alpha male, they will help a challenger get rid of you. Uh, if you are a good alpha male, um, they will support you in your position. So would you say empathy is hardwired? Is it instinctual or is it learned? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's instinctual is a, is a term that we barely use anymore because it sort of suggests that something is there genetically and the environment has very little effect on it, like an automated response. I think we have a capacity, we are born with a capacity for empathy, most of us, except for the few psychopaths maybe, but most of us are born with the capacity for empathy. And, and certainly I think we can develop it. We, we, a society or a family can enhance it or suppress it. So, so I, I think we have an effect on it. We actually have some evidence for that because we studied bonobos uh, at a sanctuary where many of the bonobos in the in, in Africa, where, where many of the bonobos are orphans because their mothers have been shot by po poachers. And so they are traumatized orphans. They come into the sanctuary, they're raised by humans, and then they are released into a piece of forest where they live as a group. And we notice that these orphans, they have more trouble with empathy than the, the bonobos in, in there who have been born to a female and raised by a female. And so mother-raised Bonobos are much better at empathy, so to speak, than the orphaned bonobos. And, and that's very similar to human, the human experiences. Uh, humans have been studied in these Romanian orphanages where, where you also have traumatized orphans and where also the, these children have a lot of trouble with empathy. And so empathy is, fluctuates with your environment. And, and so if you have a good environment, you're raised by in, a, in a good family, so to speak, you probably have more of it than when you're raised in an abusive family or, or have lost your mother and so on. Another big one is self-recognition. Is this a purely human trait? Yeah, so the, the study of self-awareness, as they call it, it, it started with studies of how chimpanzees respond to mirrors. And what they found is that uh, if you put a mark on a chimpanzee without him knowing, and you put him in front of a mirror, uh, he will touch the mark. So that's called the mirror mark test. And, and if you do that with human children, if they're older than 18 months, they also will touch the mark. And, and so the children have self-awareness. They, they recognize the connection between their mirror image on which there is a mark and their own face on which there is a mark. So they make that connection. You put a monkey, a, a chimp is not a monkey, of course. A chimp is an ape. You, you put a monkey in front of a mirror with a mark on them. They don't do anything. They, they just stare at themselves. And this is true for many animals. You can do that. You can try it on your dog tonight and your dog will not touch the mark or be puzzled by the reflection and so on. And so the mirror mark test, initially, we, we um, I think it has now become more controversial and we, and we look at it a little bit differently. But in, initially, it was said the apes have it. The monkeys don't have it. Humans, of course, are apes. We are basically apes. So humans and apes have it. And then we discovered it in elephants and uh, others discovered it in dolphins. But it's a very limited group of animals that have 
this capacity. Now we, um, we are not so sure anymore because you can create situations in which monkeys have some of it and you can create situations in which even fish have some of it. And so now the, the, the sharp dividing line that we used to have has become a bit more blurry than it used to be. Uh, but still, I think it's an important marker of self-identity, so to speak. And uh, children, for example, when they develop mirror self-recognition around the age of two, um, that's also the age at which they start to talk about themselves, me and look at me and things like that. And that's also the age at which they start to show more complex forms of empathy where they try to get into the situation of others and, and understand more about others. And so I think it is an important marker in human development and it's probably also an important marker in the evolution of a species. What about dreaming? Does this have anything to do with self-awareness? Well, dreaming, I don't know so much about it. I do know that people look, of course, at the, at the body movements that animals make, like your dog is sleeping and your dog will make movements uh, and, and interpret that as dreaming. And some people have looked, I think, at brain, uh, brain images, but it's very hard to do these, these imaging studies on, on animals because they are usually not sitting still the way... You can tell humans and put them in a scanner and say, sit still and we will do a test on you. Uh, it's very hard to do that with animals. And uh, there are no dogs who are being trained to be in a scanner. And uh, I see, I know there's monkey studies where they train them to sit still in the scanner, but you only get like two or three minutes of uh, uh, sitting still out of that. And um, so we have, a, we have a better understanding in the, of these brain processes in humans than in other species. What about cooperation? Cooperation is interesting because we always think of animals as competitive animals trying to survive, you know? We tend to think of them less as communities working towards a shared goal. Are there examples of this in the animal kingdom? Yeah, so the simplest examples are uh, classical tests where you, they, they were already done 100 years ago with chimps. You put a heavy box in front of a cage with two chimps. They both, have, they both get a rope to pull at and they can't get the box only close uh, because the box is heavy if they pull together. On their own, they cannot do it. And then you see how well coordinated are they, do they understand, and, and actually the chimps in these early experiments already, they encouraged each other. So if one of them walked away, they would get him back in this, in, because that was not good for the other one. And so they, they coordinated and they understood the whole process of, of cooperation. Those are the, the simple studies. Um, I got interested at some point in how they divide the payoffs, because if you both bring in food, you should share it because so in, in all the primates, always there's one, one individual is dominant over the other. The dominant individual could take all of it and leave the other without nothing. That would be not a very smart strategy because if you do that, the other one is not the next time not going to be very motivated. So um, if you want to have sustained cooperation going, you need to share the payoffs. And so I got interested into the fairness issue. How, how fair is the distribution between individuals. We did a lot of experiments with capuchin monkeys and with chimpanzees, and we found that the most successful combinations of individuals are the ones who share. If, if I help you all the time and you never share the payoffs with me, I'm going to look for a better partner. You're not a good partner for me. And that's what happened with the chimps also. And so the fairness issue became a big one, and we, we developed this experiment with capuchin monkeys that now on the internet has been seen by 200 million people. It's the most watched animal experiment, I think, on the internet 
And that's the experiment where two capuchin monkeys need to do a very simple task. And one of them gets much better rewards than the other one. So one of them gets uh, little pieces of cucumber for it. The other one gets grapes for it. And the one who gets grapes is, of course, much better off. And what we find is that the one who gets cucumber uh, gets upset. So even though these monkeys are perfectly willing to work for cucumber purely, if both of them get cucumber, they're fine. They're not fine if one of them gets grapes and the other one cucumber. So they get very upset. And we started testing that out. Then with chimpanzees, we started testing it out too. Now, chimps, of course, are much more complex than capuchin monkeys and much closer to us. And in chimps, we got even much more complex interactions. We got things like the one who gets grapes refuses the grapes until the other one also gets grapes. And so the, the chimpanzees went to a different level with this whole thing. They, they started to, to strive for equal outcomes, which is really the, the full-blown sense of fairness that we humans have too. So would you say that primates have a moral system of sorts? No, no, I've, I've thought extensively about the origins of morality. And this came out of my work on empathy, because, of course, uh, according to some, let's say the Dalai Lama, uh, morality is all about empathy. Basically, the Dalai Lama says, without, without compassion, you would not have morality. And compassion is actually... You cannot go wrong with compassion, and compassion is sort of the basis of human morality. Um, other people, like, let's say, Kantian philosophers, they think reason and logic is the basis of morality, but I don't believe that personally. I, I think um, if you don't have empathy, let's say I'm, I'm, not, I'm indifferent to other people, I don't care about other people, I don't think I can be a moral being. So I think being interested in others and being sensitive to their situation and their emotions is absolutely essential for human morality. We may add a lot of logic and reasoning to it, so that, that's very well possible that our cognition adds a lot of things to it, but without that basis, we would not be moral beings. And so um, when I started working on empathy in animals, I automatically got interested in the origins of morality. And even though I don't think uh, chimpanzees have a morality at the level that we have it. Uh, I, I don't think, for example, they're interested in consensus building and justification and all these other elements of human morality. Uh, but they have a certain normativity. There, there's certain behavior that they don't accept in their group, for example. So there is a certain normativity. And um, they protest, for example, against unfairness, which is uh, one of the many things that we have in our moral system. So I think there's many elements of the human moral systems that we can find in other species. So if primates display a moral system of sorts, how do they behave when they come across amoral behavior? Do they punish perpetrators? Do they have laws they uphold? Well, that, those are big words, laws and social norms and enforcement. It's, it's always on a sort of ad hoc basis. Nothing is uh, set in rules like it might be in our case. Uh, but yes, they, they respond to behavior that they don't accept. So, for example, in captive colonies of chimpanzees that I've known, uh, the females don't accept that males use their canine teeth, which are very big teeth, on juveniles. So the males, they may have fights with each other in which they use these teeth. That's possible. It's very dangerous. They do that. Uh, they may sometimes use them on adult females. That also sometimes happens, but most of the time they don't use them on females. 
But if they ever use them against a juvenile, the females don't accept that. And so all the females go after that male, and that male is in deep trouble at that moment. And, and I've seen moments where they almost like took a vote. Like, you, you, for example, we had an alpha male who um, went after an adolescent male. The adolescent male had been trying to mate with certain females, and he was not happy about that, the alpha male. And so he went after that young male who, who was only half his size. And uh, he went after him and after him, and he did not give up. And, and so it was clear that he was going to bite him if he would catch him. Uh, and you could see the adult females, the alpha female first, but then other females too. They started to bark. And so they were just sitting around, but they were giving barks. And uh, the, the more they barked, the more females barked. So at some point, you had like a dozen females barking at that male. Uh, he gave up and he was he was terrified. The alpha male was the alpha male was screaming in panic. I think he knew that if he had done one step further, these females would have gone after him, and it would not have been very nice with him. And so um, clearly there was a limit to what he could do. And so even the alpha male, the people often think that the alpha male can do whatever he wants. That's not true. Even the alpha male is bound by certain rules. And this was one of these limits that they have is you don't use these K90s on, on a young male. So there's not one universal reaction. There are no formal rules, but there seems to be a certain form of consensus going on. Yeah, there, there are no rules, certainly. Uh, but in this case, it seems like an informal rule. And, and these females barking seems to be like a sort of taking the vote. <laughs> like, how do we feel about this? And um, so, so these processes are not nearly as formalized as in human society where we, we have the Ten Commandments or something like that. Uh, it's all much more informal. So it seems like a lot of the walls that human thinkers have put up to separate us from the animal kingdom are more porous than previously thought. Some animals are capable of communicating in very complex ways, of cooperating and even protesting unfairness. One idea that really upsets some people is the belief that animals experience emotionally rich inner lives like we do. Do you think there are major differences in the emotions humans and animals experience? Yeah, so I've, st I've struggled with that. In my book, um, Mama's Last Hug, I started out thinking that probably there are a few emotions that are uniquely human. But in the end, after looking at all the cases, I, I don't think there are uniquely human emotions. And I now look at the emotions a bit like organs, uh, the organs of our body. So, so, so I don't have any organs in my body that you don't find in a dog or that you don't find even in a frog. We all have reproductive organs and we have lungs and we have a heart and we have kidneys and we have a liver, we have a brain. All the organs that I have are essential for my uh, well-being. And you find them for that reason, you find them in, in all the mammals and, and even in some other species. And so uh, I look at the emotions now also this way. It is possible that some emotions, let's say guilt or shame, are more complex in our case and more elaborate uh, and, and serve more functions maybe, but they're not brand new. For example, shame, um, shame relates very much Shame and embarrassment relates very much to submissive behavior. When, when, for example, you are ashamed, you want to sink into the ground. You want to hide your face. You don't look up. You make yourself look smaller. And, and so th that's all a submissive response. And people have pointed out that similarity is that when we, when we get ashamed, 
we are in a situation where we potentially think to be in trouble with others. And, and so there's very much a sort of submissive appeasement response that we give, very similar to the submissive behavior of many species. And so physically, from the outside, shame looks very much like that kind of behavior. And so I think the emotions behind it are probably not so different. And, and so, yes, it, it may be more elaborate and more complex in some cases, but it's not a brand new emotion in our case. What about love? Can we extend the same terminology we use for ourselves to animals? Yeah, so if we were to do that with humans, let's say two people are in love and they get married and all of this, and, and we would say, well, uh, I don't want to call that love. I call it bonding. They are very bonded, and now they are officially bonded. And yeah, we, we could do that, but we don't do that in the human case because we know that there are very strong emotions behind the bonding. And why would there not be very strong emotions behind the bonding of animals? There, there are certain birds who, who stay together all their life. Um, would we say that they don't love each other? And, and we also know that if one of them dies, the other one may die soon thereafter um, because they, they, um, they have a grieving process and they, they will be depressed in the same way that, for example, a chimpanzee female who loses her offspring is going to be very depressed for a couple of weeks. She will not eat for a couple of weeks. We know from certain studies on rodents um, that the, the stress levels, uh, the physiologically the stress levels, like cortisol levels, they go up under these circumstances. So all these responses are very similar to our responses to loss and grieving. So I have a tendency to think that there must be similarity rather than difference. And so if, if animals are bonded and respond very strongly to the loss of somebody else, these processes emotionally must be very similar to what we experience. So I'm not against talk, speaking of love in animals. I don't see what the problem is with that. Um, but some people, yeah, they object to that because they think that's anthropomorphic or unnecessary to use that kind of terminology. I know there are studies of elephants performing funerary rites when a member of their group dies. Do you think some animals understand death? Well, that's a, that's a bit of a problem because I, I look at it from two sides. Do they understand the death of others? Or, and do they understand that they themselves one day are going to die? So that would be the last one would be a sense of mortality. The first one I think they definitely have. I think animals understand very well when one of them is dead um, that this this is a permanent situation. That's why they have a very strong response to it. So, for example, chimpanzees, when one of the chimpanzees dies, they uh, they will not vocalize for a couple of days. They sometimes will not eat for a couple of days. They're very affected by it. If they can see the body, they test out the body a bit like um, what we do in hospitals also when someone has died to, to make sure that they are dead. And so they test out the body, but they also stare at the body and sit around it and are very depressed looking. And so um, I, I do think they have an understanding of the death of others. Let me give you an anecdote. This was bonobos in, in the sanctuary where we do our work. The bonobos had discovered a snake and it was a, a venomous snake, a dangerous snake. And so they they were uh, throwing sticks and, and, and throwing rocks at the snake. They were not getting close. They were not picking it up until one, uh, one moment the alpha female picked up the snake by the tail and smacked it against the ground a few times until it was gone. It was dead. Once the snake was dead, 
the youngsters came over and put it around their neck and walked around with the snake, and they, 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 it became a plaything for them. And so I found that very interesting because that indicates that they knew that the, cha- that the, the, the snake had changed its condition, so to speak. It had gone from alive to dead. And so they understood something about that change. And I think many animals have an understanding of the death of others and, and respond strongly to it. Um, their own death, we really don't have evidence that they have a sense of mortality. I, I'm personally not convinced from what I've seen uh, that, they, that they understand that they are going to die when they're very sick, for example. So um, I'm not sure that they have that understanding. That's so interesting. Yeah, I've seen images of chimps observing dead mice with what looks like uh, melancholy or sadness for the dead mouse. Do you think animals feel empathy for other species? No, they can They can certainly, once you have the capacity for empathy, it can be applied outside of your species. And, and of course, we humans do that all the time. We We see a stranded whale and we push it back into the ocean and... That's an act of empathy, of course. We, so, so empathy can cross the, the species barrier. And we do have evidence also from the field. For example, the, the observations of dolphins helping human swimmers against sharks or human swimmers who are in trouble because of the, the waves in the ocean or the, the observations of, let's say, humpback whales um, supporting um, gray whales against uh, or, or seals against orcas. So, so there are these interspecies interactions that suggest that empathy can cross the species boundary, um, and uh, in, in, for example, in uh, the apes, uh, one interesting observation uh, was was a, a bonobo named Cooney, who lived uh, in a zoo in the UK, and found a little bird that had hit the glass. So Cooney lived in captivity. The bird flew against the glass and was stunned and, and fell to the ground. And Cooney picked up the bird and, and went to the highest point of her enclosure, which was a tree. And in the top of the tree, she, she unfolded the wings of the birds and tried to send it out like a little airplane. Uh, it, it didn't work so well for the bird, but it, it, I, I find it so interesting that she, she thought of what would be best for a bird. She, this is not something she would ever have done with another bonobo or another animal. No, but for a bird, this seems like the right thing to do. And and this this comes back a little bit, I mentioned perspective taking and imagination. These are the more complex levels of empathy where you're not just affected by the emotions of somebody else, but you're also um, capable of taking their perspective to some degree. And I think uh, bonobos have that capacity. Uh, the apes and the dolphins and the elephants have some of that capacity. I wanted to read you a quote to see if you agree or disagree. It's about separating man from animal. Years ago, anthropologist Margaret Mead was asked by a student what she considered to be the first sign of civilization in a culture. The student expected Mead to talk about fish hooks or clay pots or grinding stones, but Mead said that the first sign of civilization in an ancient culture was a femur that had been broken and then healed. Mead explained that in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die. You can't run from danger or get to the river for a drink or hunt for food. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. A broken femur that has healed is evidence that someone has taken the time to stay with the one who fell, has bound up the wound, has carried the person to safety, and has tended the person through recovery. Helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts. Is this a uniquely human characteristic? I doubt it. And 
there are animals, of course, who are so mobile, they're, they're constantly traveling, that it becomes, if you have a member like that, it becomes very difficult. So we humans, we have settlements, and so you can put someone like that in a hut and, and take care of them, and, and they don't need to move. Uh, but many animals, like let's say elephants, they, they need to move every day. Uh, and so they, it's really problematic to take care of someone like that. But taking care of those who are sick or ill or cannot move very well does happen. So, for example, uh, chimpanzees may slow down their movement when one of them is limping and, and has trouble uh, keeping up. Um, uh, so, so these things do happen. But for many species, that's a bit problematic. But I think if, if her point is that the tendency to help someone who is in trouble is a uniquely human feature, then she's wrong. I don't think that's a uniquely human feature. For example, the, the observations of dolphins who, who keep one of them afloat who has been stunned by, let's say, the sounds of some fisher boat or something. So, so the, the helping actions directed at others are not uniquely human. Um, but um, the particular situation of keeping someone alive for years, uh, that's going to be hard for many animals, I think. You created a term in your book I find really encapsulates the state of affairs in terms of human-animal relationships. You call it neo-creationism, the belief that we're so different that we are superior. It's almost as if we can't face the fact that we too are animals. Yeah, so the neo-creationism. <laughs> so, so many academics, of course, they are not officially creationists. They, they will say, yes, we evolved from the apes. And uh, yes, we, uh, our body certainly is a primate body. And so, but our mind, our mind is so different. It's so absolutely different. I always say that it's, it's like they believe in evolution till we reach the neck. And then everything above the neck is uh, our own making, basically. The human mind is unique. Yeah, the, the London Zoo story is sort of emblematic because um, it used to be at the London Zoo, and many other zoos, by the way, they had these tea parties. They would bring out the apes into a cage with a table and a tablecloth and chairs, and, and the chimps would sit around the table and then drink tea. Uh, and, and this was at the London Zoo, and so for the Brits, of course, tea drinking is the summit of... Um, of, of, of culture and uh, being enculturated. And so the, the chimpanzees, but the chimpanzees did it actually too well. They would pick up these little cups and drink from them and so on. And they did it so well that the people were uncomfortable about them doing this. And so the, the, the trainers had to retrain the chimpanzees to make errors and throw the cups around or dunk them in the teapot or empty the teapot directly into their mouths and so, so, so that people saw that, yeah, these apes, they were actually quite different from them. They, they felt more comfortable than being different. You know, what, what I always find so striking, people want to be so different from animals and they, many people are insulted if you say that they are animals. Uh, one of the problems we have in society at the moment is, is this distance between us and nature. And, and actually with the, the virus crisis and with the climate crisis, all of these crises, they come partly from uh, the idea that we humans are separate from nature. We, we can separate ourselves. We can do with nature whatever we want. We can eat bats if we want to. Uh, we, can, we can have Australian fires and we will be fine with it. We, we, can, we can do whatever we want with nature and we will still be fine because we humans, we are different. We are closer to God and uh, more distant from the animals. 
And I think that whole attitude in the West has given us a lot of trouble. And, and I, I think in order to get out of this, because there's all this discussion now, how do we get out of the climate crisis? How do we get out of the enormous environmental uh, problems that we have at the moment? I think it will take a whole overhaul of our religions and philosophies, which emphasize so much the difference between us and other species. And we need to move to in a direction where we emphasize the similarities. We are animals. We are just as vulnerable as other animals to diseases and things like that. So we cannot do whatever we want to do. We, everything comes back to bite us. And, and, and we live now in a time where that's happening, actually. It would appear that we share so many characteristics. Perhaps it would be easier to describe our differences than to recount our similarities. What are the larger implications of this? How should this affect our relationship with animals? Yeah, animal research is one of the areas. So, but that's a, that's a small, those are small numbers compared to agriculture. So, so we have billions and billions of animals uh, in the farm industry. We have millions in laboratories. We have thousands in zoos. The big numbers are in, in the meat industry. Uh, but in all these areas, I think we need to watch what we do as animals. And we're not always doing that. And so if you, if you look at how we treat pigs and how we treat chickens, uh, that's not very humane what we're doing. So I think my kind of work on cognition and emotions uh, and, and showing the similarities and the connections between humans and other species has moral implications. And, and um, I feel that, for example, the way we treat animals in the agricultural industry is, is horrible. Um, and I, I'm not against meat eating because people always ask, uh, are you vegetarian and so on. I'm not against the eating of meat, but I'm against the current treatment of animals. We, we, it's not the eating part, it's the treatment part that I have trouble with. And so we, we do need to treat animals better, and it would probably be necessary in order to do that that we eat less meat, maybe, maybe 50% um, from what we do now. So we need to eat less meat and become less dependent on it, and then we can treat the animals that we do keep uh, better than what we do now, because it's really not um, a sustainable situation. It's really ironic that we extend the rights of the individual to corporations, but not to animals. Thank you so much, France. It was great talking with you. Thank you. France de Waal's research has shifted paradigms in the scientific community. His latest books, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? and Mama's Last Hug, have brought a lot of research and philosophy to the larger public. And I highly recommend both. They are accessible and really fun to read. France de Waal's larger argument is that we're not so different after all. Animals can cooperate, they protest unfairness, they feel empathy towards others, and lead emotionally rich inner lives. While any pet owner might find some of these observations to be obvious, it has been an uphill battle to convince the scientific community and the public at large because the more we recognize our similarities, the more we lose our unique status. Recognizing we are part of a complex web of evolution and not separate from it has implications from the way we think of ourselves as the center of the universe to the way we treat animals. Taken far enough, these ideas could have political implications as well. 
In fact, in the next episode, we'll talk with Eva Mayer, author of Animal Languages, who argues that animals do indeed have language, and that this should be a call to action for inclusion of animals into our political and social systems. That would be a hit that the neo-creationists, as France de Waal calls them, would never recover from. Until next time.